You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. We're not allowed, us, the union workers, to smoke in the plant, but we've observed placement workers smoking in the plant. If you take rail cars and unloading rail cars, we're not supposed to be uh, riding on the rail cars while they're moving, and we've observed replacement workers riding on the rail cars. So that makes you question, what are they doing with chemicals? That's Ryan Hawk on the BCTGM Voices Project from the Bakery Workers Union, where he discusses wage and job elimination issues surrounding the ingredient strike. You say, okay, you want to sell us hubcaps, we want you to deliver those hubcaps the day before we have to put them on the cars in our assembly line. Uh, so they have no inventory. So then the pandemic hits and there's no backup plan. From the Union Yes Iowa podcast, Iowa Federation of Labor Secretary-Treasurer Pete Hurd interviews Peter Fisher about the impact that inflation has on workers. You've seen across, um, like here in Portland, also elsewhere, you know, people who drive their car off the lot in 2019, like a new car, the car is actually worth more than it was uh, when they drove it off the lot, just due to the, the huge lack of those chips that get used inside of cars. And on Labor Radio on KBU FM, Michael and Elliot discuss the Chips and Science Act and what it means for working people. Wow, have you seen this video? It's an entire crew walking off the job in solidarity with a coworker who was fired at a popular coffee shop. You probably know the one I'm talking about. The video has over 23 million views. That's right, 23 million views. We wrap up this week with a fun one, March on the Boss videos from the Million Dollar Organizer podcast. And a quick word before we get to the show, this is your network. We're building it like a union organizing campaign, one show and one listener at a time. You can help us build this sonic solidarity, share the show, just click on the share button. We appreciate it. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. BCTGM Voices Project, a podcast highlighting the real people who make up our union, the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers. I'm Michelle Ellis, Director of Digital Media. I will bring the work of our union to you through monthly interviews with the BCTGM's hardworking leaders, organizers, and everyday members. This is the BCTGM Voices Project. On August 1st, following around 20 sessions of contract negotiations, 120 BCTGM members of Local 100G in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, went on strike against Ingredion Incorporated. One week into their demonstration, two members from the Union Negotiating Committee sat down to elaborate on the issues with me. Here is their story. I'm Ryan Hookie. I've been with Ingredion since 2011. 
I'm the financial secretary for BCTGM 100G. I'm also on the negotiating committee. My name is Chris Eby. I've been with Ingredient since 1991, and I'm a member of the uh, current contract negotiating committee. Great. I want to start by giving a little bit of background on this story. I know that you guys had some issues in 2015 when this company was previously Penford Products. So tell us what it was like before they were bought out and, and what the work environment was then maybe compared to now. Yeah, I'll let Chris elaborate a little, a little bit more because I wasn't there real long, but felt a little more, I guess, almost family-based. They treated their people like people. Once Ingredion took over with all of our problems, he's, you, you more and more just felt like you were a digit on a time clock. Prior to Ingredion, they're called Penford Products. And it was a lot easier to uh, deal with the company. You had a much better relationship. And a lot of that had to do with that uh, all their management there locally had the power to actually negotiate with you or to sell issues instead of somebody in a suit coming from somewhere else. In fact, Penford Products' own president of the company had his office in the building there. So that made it a lot more conducive to getting things done and respecting each other. So you guys have been in negotiations for how long on this contract? Uh, we've negotiated, I think, a total of 20 days, so okay. 20 sessions. Okay. So I do have a list of strike issues. We've got the outsourcing of the bargaining unit jobs. What does that mean? Every union, when they get uh, you know, chartered or certified with the NLRB, call a recognition clause, and it's the work that, that the union would represent. And in that, our recognition clause, it has quality lab technicians and the company at this point in time is uh, wanting to take that away you know refusing to put that back into their offer so currently that's five jobs it varies based on the production but that's that that is our work and and that's something they just want to take away and say hey no that's something the management's going to do well and you guys uh, from what I've been reading and kind of catching up on it you work with chemicals in that plant yes um, so there, there must be a pretty steep learning curve just in terms of training and, you know, regarding union workers working those jobs who are properly trained and understand the safety issues involved and have a union steward versus, you know, these replacement workers who come in. Are you guys concerned about that right now? It's just them doing the job. and Absolutely. You know, it's a starch plant and, you know, starch plants, in, if uh, there's too much dust, they're easy to explode. And right here at our own plant back in, I believe it was 1912, uh, they had a major explosion and uh, bricks from it were received 30 miles away from the plant. Wow. Uh, as, as you've uh, questioned, you know, we have chemicals down there and some of them that uh, could be pretty devastating to our community. And what, what you have right now in there is replacement workers. And of course, we know they're going to be lax. We've already seen it. We're not allowed us, the union workers, to smoke in the plant, but we've observed placement workers smoking in the plant. We take rail cars and unloading rail cars. We're not supposed to be uh, riding on the rail cars while they're moving. And we've observed replacement workers riding on the rail cars. So that makes you question, what are they doing with the chemicals? Yeah. Um, can I clarify with you guys? You, you said you produce starches in there. I've heard adhesives. These things go into mostly paper products in that facility. Correct. Um, 
Can you just tell everybody and like any identifying labels or brands that that what you're doing there it goes into? To see what what happens, we process corn, and then the starches. Well, there's things that go off like cattle feed and stuff, the byproducts, but there's starches goes in the papers, textiles, ceiling tiles, adhesive glues, um, paper corrugators for cardboard boxes. One of our biggest customers is a cardboard maker for Amazon, Georgia Pacific, you know, paper. So there's a lot of paper products, just industrial products, food service products, you know, paper cups, paper plates, you know, different things that we manufacture. Coatings for foods like yeah. French fries and stuff. I thank you guys for taking time to uh, do this with me today. Oh, we appreciate, appreciate everything that so you guys much. have done for us. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. I'm going to end it here then. Thanks a All lot. Right. Thank Bye. you. Bye, guys. We are BCTGM on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more on the activities of the BCTGM, go to bctgm.org. My name is Peter Hurd. I'm with the Iowa Federation of Labor, AFL-CIO. One of the biggest things right now is uh, inflation. Uh, there's lots of talk. There's lots of um, hypothesis, hypotheses out there about what's going on and how to fix it. And everybody's kind of got different perspectives on it. But I want to bring in Peter Fisher, who's formerly with uh, Common Good Iowa and the Iowa Policy Project and has always been a good friend of ours um, in the labor movement. You know, like when I was in school, like uh, the being an economist wasn't usually on like the uh, what do you want to do for a living, um, uh, you know, list of list of careers. How did you become an economist? Like, where did that how did that where did that come from? Well, probably got started when I was uh, graduated uh, from undergraduate college in, in 1968, and then I. Joined Vista as a community organizer, actually, in, in Kansas City and trying to figure out why the world was so screwed up. And there are all these poor people living down at the bottom of the, of the hill and rich people at the top. Yeah. In fact, the area I worked in in Kansas City was called the East Bottoms. It was full of railroad yards and air pollution from chemical plants and people struggling to get by. So I thought maybe if I become an economist, I can figure out what's wrong with this economy. <laughs> There's a lot that gets blamed on the American Rescue Plan, um, but not every country in the world did that and they're dealing with the same inflation or even worse than what we are because they don't have the natural resources, I think. Um, but also there's a lot of other issues, right? Um, you know, we went through the pandemic and there was a lot, there was a high demand and supply. There was a high demand for some, some products and some country, uh, some businesses had to step up and make a bunch of products, keep up with demand. And then the pandemic got over and now there's kind of some leftovers um, supplies. What are other than, you know, um, food and oil, like what are some other things that affect inflation or that are affecting inflation right now. Yeah, well, you mentioned the, the pandemic and, and you know, people trying to blame the American Rescue Plan. Well, and the other forms of pandemic aid, which, which were massive. But 
I mean, those programs worked. They prevented uh, a prolonged recession. They got people back to work. They got the economy quickly back to where it should have been, where it was pre-pandemic. Uh, but the problem goes back, you know, 30 or 40 years because of this strategy of globalization by American corporations. Their strategy has been to find the single lowest cost producer of every little component and raw material that goes into whatever it is they're making. And they search all over the world. And so if the cheapest supplier uh, of this particular part is in Taiwan, fine, we'll just get all our parts from all of those from Taiwan and we'll get more from you know Korea and more from you know the Ukraine or wherever. And so, and then the other thing is this just-in-time inventory idea that took hold you know, 30 years ago. You don't accumulate inventories of parts and raw materials in your warehouse anymore. You say, okay, you want to sell us hubcaps. We want you to deliver those hubcaps the day before we have to put them on the cars in our assembly line. Um, so they have no inventory. So then the pandemic hits and there's disruptions in the supply chain. Corporations had, they had no backup plan. They had no alternative suppliers. If, if part of their supply chain was broken, that might be all it took to shut down the whole operation because they can't get that component. They have no inventories built up. They have no redundancy, no you know, alternative sources for their inputs. So, you know, that's really why the, that's really how the current inflationary surge started back in the pandemic is that the supply chain disruptions and American companies not in a position to, to adjust. So thanks again, Peter. And uh, hopefully, you know, maybe we get around the corner this year, we can get back to a little normality for everyone. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's a good thing to do. Glad to do it. Thanks, Peter. Have a good day. Okay. Welcome to Labor Radio on KBOO Portland. I am Michael Cathcart. And I'm Elliot Gilland. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and now into the discussion that we will be covering for the rest of this uh, show. We're going to be talking about the, the CHIPS Act that just passed through the House, Senate, and was signed uh, by President Joe Biden. You may or may not have heard of, uh, of the CHIPS and Science Act that just passed. Uh, it was largely overshadowed this past week by the, the FBI raid at, at Mar-a-Lago and also even the, the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. But this is a major step forward that the Democratic Party and, and the Biden administration have taken to try and help shore up uh, you know, jobs and manufacturing in this country. Um, yeah, so on August 9th, President Joe Biden signed the Chips and Science Act into law. This signing approves a $280 billion package that includes $52 billion in subsidies to encourage chip, chip manufacturers to build semiconductor fabrication plants domestically here within the U.S. Um, this is, you know, rightly being touted as a bipartisan deal intended to revive American industry and is set rhetorically in opposition to uh, the growing Chinese technological dominance within that industry. Um, you know, it, it, it cut, this largely came about, you know, this has been something that, that uh, proponents of the bill have been working on for a few years in, in the House and in the Senate. And it has largely come about 
due to U.S. officials' fears that without any government intervention, chip manufacturers will continue to offshore new foundries to China, leaving the U.S. to fall behind in an industry that it pioneered decades ago. You know, I mean, this is uh, semiconductor chips are a thing that were developed in this country. That technology was developed here, and for a long time they were produced in this country. And you know, after uh, you know, after the the Reagan administration and then that the, the large offshoring of, of most manufacturing in the country, most of those uh, plants and that production went overseas, largely to uh, Chinese factories. Um, and so, just a little bit of explanation as to what these this product is. Uh, semiconductor chips are essentially, uh, are sorry, rather, are essential to the production of cars, smartphones, uh, computers, medical equipment, and even things like LED light bulbs and smart refrigerators and things like that. You know, among just a plethora of other uh, electronic goods, like consumer goods. Um, the you know because of the the decades long decline in domestic production of everything, but also specifically these chips. Uh, American manufacturers have long had, you know, long had to import these chips from overseas, specifically China. Um, and this process has been recently severely hampered by the supply chain disruptions that have been, you know, so rampant and so uh, hyped during the, the COVID era. Um, and so this, of course, in turn, has led to a global microchip shortage um, and has limited the production of many consumer goods. You know, most notably, this has sort of played out in the car industry, especially like early on in the pandemic. There mm -hmm. was a huge shortage of, of cars and it was kind of a huge backlog. Well, I mean, you've seen across um, like here in Portland, also elsewhere, you know, people who drive their car off the lot in 2019, like a new car, the car is actually worth more than it was uh, when they drove it off the lot. Just due right. to the, the huge lack of uh, or the huge issue in supply chain for a lot of those chips that get used um, uh, in, inside of cars. Um, and so, yeah. you know, obviously, I think this is a, you know, you mentioned it. This has been something that's been in the works for a long time. But I think the supply chain issues during the pandemic really bought, brought this to the forefront. Just kind of thinking about the U.S. economy in general and other things like that. And I think it's also important to note, too, that a lot of these price hikes uh, due to supply chain issues are, I think, partly responsible for some of the inflation that's happening, right? It's not, yeah. I mean, the, the, obviously inflation is a super complicated topic that we don't dive into a ton here on the show, but you know, it's, it's become an issue, you know, and we, and we touched on the inflation act that also the, the past, the inflation reduction act, but um, you know, I, I do think this is another way to, to help target it. Um, another beneficiary part of this is, you know, targeting uh, um, inflation. Yeah. Absolutely. And like, I mean, exactly like you said, you know, the, the fact that that like new vehicles rolling off the lot are actually appreciating a value, whereas they have forever been immediately depreciating a value once you drive it off the lot. It says a lot about how valuable these chips are and about how strained the supply chain for this specific uh, product yeah. is. Yeah, I mean, I think we've been seeing it across, across you know, as the pandemic continues to, to develop and, you know, as it's not clearly not going away and yeah. supply chain issues kind of show like that they're here to stay. You know, they, they were just built on these razor thin margins that have now been kind of completely thrown off. You know, I yeah. think it's become very clear that there are important resources that, you know, until the world is in a more globalized place, kind of you're required to make sure that you're developing in your own uh, backyard. So. Um, right. The, and I, I, I would argue chips is one of those. Yeah, I think it's maybe one of the primary, uh, I mean, at least, you know, every new vehicle now, you know, even 
not from electric cars, but even from still gas, uh, gas-consuming cars, they are all run largely by microchips in a way that a car that you would have bought 20 years ago, like say around the you know the turn of the millennium, would not have had that level of technology in it. And so yeah, like these are essential to the production of something as as large and huge uh, consumer good as as vehicles. But even as I mentioned, something as simple as an LED light bulb, like something you can control by uh, your cell phone or you know a smart microwave or toaster or anything like that. These chips aren't everything, and so if that industry and that supply chain specifically are squeezed, uh, then we see the domestic production of those products decrease, and that means consumer goods that people come to expect, and you know at the at the price that working people can afford, just you know go out the window. And so it is a smart idea to try and bring that you know that production back onshore. It's the Million Dollar Organizer Show. Tips for professional union organizers. Win more campaigns, balance work and family, and leave the competition in the dust. Now here's your host, Bob Odie. Hello, union organizers and future union organizers. This is podcast episode number 62. Welcome to the show. Today's subject, March on the Boss. Wow, have you seen this video? It's an entire crew walking off the job in solidarity with a coworker who was fired at a popular coffee shop. You probably know the one I'm talking about. The video has over 23 million views. That's right, 23 million views. I couldn't wait to share it myself. Go check it out. It's exciting. That's why it's so effective. Last month, several organizers practiced a march on the boss here in Los Angeles. Labor agitators, students, political activists, doing a little refresher course on union organizing. We broke into two groups. Our role was workers in a lunchroom. We were approached by a coworker to sign a petition. No problem, right? We heard the arguments, and what was being discussed seemed perfectly reasonable. Others voiced additional concerns. Everyone was included and given a chance to be heard. Then we gathered in the back of the room to discuss our options. Someone suggested an action, and the next thing we knew, it's on. Let me tell you, it was exciting. It felt fantastic to be out of our seats and actually stirring it up. We were no longer just talking about the issues, but making a difference. In a mock setting, mind you. Naturally, I snapped a few photos and shared them on Instagram, at Union Organizer. Go take a look. Several students videotaped it with their phones. We didn't ask them to do it. They did it on their own. And this is probably what happened in the video which garnered so much attention online. For me, it was the highlight of the day. I'm sure everyone would agree. The person who played the role of management acted as expected. They tried to minimize our participation, tried to divide and conquer using guilt and loyalty to the company. Everyone was told to go back to work, but the group stayed united. We found out quickly who could lead a chant. Even those in the back were able to participate. One of the things I got out of the training, we're not going to get everything we want, but action itself equals victory. Sometimes it is about learning. And practice does make perfect. A march on the boss can be really effective. How effective? 23 million views and counting. Thanks for listening. We hope that you'll subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Give us a five-star review and let us know what you'd like to hear the Million Dollar Organizer talk about. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Union Organizer. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.
Well, that's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them. Use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Mel Smith and Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. Before we go, take just a second to help us build some sonic solidarity by sharing this show. Just click on the share button. Thanks very much. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.